We'll be reading from Psalm 1, English Standard Version, I'm told. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kyle. Uh, as uh, Megan mentioned a few minutes ago, we're, uh, we're going to spend a few weeks together in the Psalms. Uh, we were in Acts just a couple weeks ago. Uh, we made it up and through Acts 8, um, but we're going to take a break from Acts. I'm not sure how long a break, to be honest with you, whether we're going to take up Acts again in the fall or in the winter. That's still undecided, but I do know we are taking a break from Acts, and we are going to spend a few weeks together looking at various psalms. Now, uh, some of you know that uh, the Bible is often, or sorry, the psalms are described as the Bible's prayer book. Uh, If you want to know how to pray, how to communicate with God, one of the best ways to learn how to give voice to your own sense of emotions, your own uh, situation in life, your own Uh, your own experiences before God is to actually read the book of Psalms. And what's wonderful about the book of Psalms is that there are many different themes addressed in the various Psalms that you come across. And so what we're going to do for the next little while is we're going to take up some of these different themes. And so if you're dealing with anxiety, there's a Psalm for that. (laughs) thought that was funny. Uh, if you're, if you're uh, afraid of dying, there's a psalm for that. There's a lot of psalms for that. If you're feeling depressed, there are psalms for that. If you're at these different psalm one, which is a different kind of psalm. It's different from a lot of the other psalms in that what psalm one tries to do is tries to teach you. It's a, it's a, it's a psalm about meditation on psalms. Uh, in other words, this psalm sort of helps us understand how to use the psalms that follow it in the Psalter. It's, it's a psalm about what we would call in modern language devotions, how to do devotions. Uh, you'll look in the back of your bulletin and see there that uh, the sermon title is Meditation and the the three points of this morning's message are the practice of meditation, the purpose of meditation, and the promise of meditation. And all of that is right here in Psalm 1. And we're going to look at that together to understand how, how to use the Psalms devotionally as the prayer book that God has given us uh, in the Bible. Okay? So... Here we go. First of all, let's look at the practice of meditation that Psalm 1 describes for us. If you look at verse 2, it says, 
The man's delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, in the Bible, there are basically two kinds of prayer described. There's what you could call calling prayer, and then there's answering prayer. Calling prayer is the kind of prayer that starts with, Lord, it starts with you. It starts with, God, I need you. God, here's my problem. God, come and help me. God, I thank you for this. It's, it's you speaking first to God. Answering prayer is you responding to God. Think about this. In any conversation, you need two participants, right? But typically, one of the participants is the leader in the conversation. They, they set the agenda. They set the tone. They, they describe the topic that's that sort of thing. Well, in answering prayer, or in calling prayer, I should say, you're kind of leading the conversation between you and God. But in answering prayer, God starts the conversation. And in answering prayer, we respond, or we pray in response to something that God says first. And that's meditation. Meditation in Christian parlance is not like meditation in other religions, in Buddhism or some forms of Hinduism. You're supposed to participate in meditation. Meditation is about emptying yourself. It's about draining yourself. It's about, about getting one with nothingness. And uh, in Christianity, it's actually the opposite. In Christianity, meditation is actually about filling yourself with the words of God. And so it says here that David meditates on specific to... I'm not going to keep going because what if I mess it up? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, I know the penitent. Um, it's, not, it's not just that. He's using law as a catch-all phrase for God's word, God's entire word. Okay? But what he's saying is, is when it, when it says he meditates on God's law, it's saying that he allows God to start the, the conversation. God is the one who chooses the subject matter. God is the one who sets the tone, who directs the, the conversation. Now, let me tell you something. This will take you into God much, much faster than calling prayer. Most of us, we start our prayers with, God, are you there? I need you. I got thing wrong. But if you are primarily concerned with being in relationship with God and experiencing Him, you've got to start with answering prayer. What does that mean? Let's, let's, let's get very practical. Okay, it says in verse 2, it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. So when an answering prayer is, is the kind of prayer that says, hmm, what does that mean? To delight in the law of the Lord. That means, that means a few things. That means I must, I must relish God's law. I must love God's word. To delight in it means to, to take pleasure in it, to find joy in it. And, and you, you think to yourself what it means to delight in God's law. It means that, that I, I am to want God to tell me what to do. I am to like it when God tells me what to do. I'm, I'm to love nothing more than to have God tell me what to do in my life. In other words, the texts start directing your thinking so that you begin to pray and you start to say, well, well, Lord, do I delight in your law? Do I care so much about your word? Do I relish it when you direct me how to live or do I kick against that? Do you see? That's answering prayer. 
Now you're in conversation with God. You see, you're not just talking to him and sort of mouthing off and saying, here's what I need, here's what I want, here's what I like, here's what I'm unhappy with. You're, you're speaking back and forth with him. That's meditation. But there's more to it than that. You'll, you'll notice that it says that on his law, David, this is verse 2 once again, meditates day and night. Now what on earth does that mean? I used to think it meant that we are all supposed to be monks or nuns or something. Like, day and night. Like, that's all the time. At least in our language, that sounds like all the time, right? But that's not what David is talking about here. Don't forget, David was a king. He was a leader of a nation. He had wars to run. He had treasuries to fund. He had, he had government branches to, to direct and, and oversee. He was a very busy man. What he says, when, when he says day and night, on, on his law he meditates day and night, he's talking about a structure. Meditating on God's word requires a regimen, a structure. It's just like exercise. How many of you have a exercise regimen like five of you that's terrible that's it new ministry of gbc we're getting in shape people you know why you don't because you have not set aside it gets pushed out right it gets pushed out by the busyness of like now i know it's summertime so every, like everything's off the table i get that but typically in your exercising life, you have a very regimented kind of slot for it in order for you to actually do it at all. If you don't set a time, it slips. And the same happens with our relationship with God. And understand this, every single relationship needs, if it's going to flourish, it needs time for communication. It needs time to go deep. Every husband and wife knows that they cannot simply go through life having quick conversations as they pass each other in the kitchen, picking up their coffee on their way to work. They have got to set aside time to actually communicate with one another, eye to eye, go deep, if they're going to have any kind of real meaningful relationship. It, it has to happen that way. You know, the reality is, is most of our devotional life is, is like, you know those... You know those, uh, those, those rip-off calendars? So you rip off the day every day? You, you see them in people's guest bathrooms a lot for some reason, and they've got like an inspirational text, right? Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Read that, rip it off, throw it in the garbage, off you go. And that's how we think we're actually... Your relationship with your spouse will always be on the surface and eventually you will, start to, you will start to distance yourself from one another. The practice of meditation requires that you set, a time, set aside some, some time. Maybe, maybe it's 15 minutes in the morning you read your Bible and 15 minutes at night before you go to bed you pray. Maybe you can only do 10 minutes but you have got to have some kind of structure. You know, in, in many, many church traditions, there's a, a, a tradition of, of reading Scripture morning, then at lunchtime, then at the evening, and then bedtime. Anybody know what tradition uses that, what it's called? It's the daily office from the Anglican tradition, and it's fabulous. 
if you want to try it, get, this, get the app from the Mission of St. Clair. The Mission of St. Clair, C-L-A-R-E. Download the app, and it will give you the daily office. You can just hit the app, and you can go through the daily office every day. But it is a way of structuring your day around meditation. Here's why you need to go deep. Look at verse 3. It says that he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. 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 <laughs> the tree takes in the water. The, the, the metaphor here is that you are like a tree. As you meditate, you're taking in the water, the water of God. The word of God is the water, okay? But what does it do? It takes in the water. It doesn't spit out water. The tree is not a pipe. It's not water in one end and water out the other end. It's water in and fruit is produced, meaning that you have to digest it, right? The tree digests the water and the nutrients it receives from the water and it actually produces fruit out of it. It makes the water, in a sense, part of itself so that it can produce the fruit. Meditation requires reflection. It requires turning God's word over in your mind. It requires making it a reality in your life, figuring out how on the earth to apply it specifically and without any kind of structure to that. You are doomed. You cannot do that. I have tried, okay? I, I, listen, let me just, full disclosure, I, I find Bible meditation hard. It is a discipline for me. It is not something that just comes easily to work. How many of you say you do your devotions while you drive to work? I'm sorry, but if you really work, you will crash. You will crash into something. Because you will be so deeply engrossed in the word of God that you will not be able to avoid hitting other people. Sorry, please continue to listen to sermons or listen to the Bible or whatever you do on your commute, but don't call that your meditation time. Your meditation time needs to be focused. And even if it's just a short 10-minute stretch in the morning before you get in the car to go to work, you will be shocked, shocked at what God reveals to you if you will take the time to do that. Now, how do we do that in practice? Okay, I want to be very, very practical and then I'm going to move on. Martin Luther had a very good way of helping people learn how to meditate on the word. T-A-C-A. -A, teach, adore, confess, ask. Okay? So let's try this with his delight is in the law of the Lord. What does that teach me? His delight is in the law of the Lord. What's the teaching there? Well, the law of the Lord is something to be treasured. It's something to be prized. It's something to be loved. It's something to be cherished. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is good. The law of the Lord is trustworthy. That's what it's teaching me. And I can, I can adore God that is absolutely trustworthy and sure and I can bank on it. You've given me your truth. I adore you and I praise you for it and I thank you for it. I have to confess. Now we're on to see. I have to confess that there's a lot of times where I don't like it when you tell me what to do and I would really prefer to do my own thing and I am sorry for that, for my self-will, for my, for my hard-heartedness, for my, my lack of, of passion and commitment to you. Please forgive me for that. And then you ask, Holy Spirit, create in me a heart that longs to delight in your will. Make me more and more like Jesus, my Savior, who delighted in your law. 
day and night. See, that's the process. It's very simple, very easy. If, if you pick it up, you might, be, you might be amazed at what happens. Okay, first of all, that was the, the practice of meditation. Second of all, the purpose of meditation. Look at verses 3 and 4. Like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In, wither. Why do I say wither? In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. He's describing two paths here, right? There's the path of righteousness, there's the path of wickedness. Now, first of all, very quickly, who are the wicked? We hear wicked and we think evil genius. They're wicked. Voldemort. Okay? That's wickedness. Or, or Hannibal Lecter, if you're older. That's wickedness. But that's not wickedness in the Bible. In the, in the, notice the are those who simply do not delight in the law of the Lord. In other words, they don't care about God. They don't care to love Him. They don't care to submit to Him. They don't care to be directed by Him. And the purpose of meditation is not to be the wicked who are like chaff, but rather like a tree that is planted by streams of water. Now here's the implication. When you actually meditate on God's word, actual change. All you cynics out there don't believe people can change. This passage is telling us that actually through the supernatural work of God through his word, which is a book, change can actually happen in your life and in my life. You can become like this tree. Now, what does it mean? What kind of change is happening? Well, there's, I was trying to figure out how to go through this because there's a lot of different ways to go through this, and I'm just going to make it very simple and boil it down to this. The change that happens is, is you go from being hollow to being substantive. You go from being hollow to being substantive. People, the Bible says, are naturally hollow. And what does that mean? Well, on one level, it means simply superficial. Human beings, we put on airs, we, we strike poses, we, we project images. We live in a world of Snapchat and Instagram where we have to project a certain kind of of life's to the world around us. We live in a kind of shallow culture where, where images everything. And so we're hollow in that sense. But, but there's a, another kind of hollowness that the Bible is talking about here, and it's a lot more serious, and it's this. The chaff, for all you non-farmers out there, comes from the husk of the grain. The husk of the grain is the outside of the grain. When you open the husk, you get the grain from inside. The husk, you, or sorry, the grain you keep and you make food with it, the husk you get rid of. And so what the Bible is saying here, what David is saying here is that the wicked are useless. They produce nothing enduring. They produce nothing that, that is, that is long-lasting. And the wind blows them away, and so they are gone. Now, why would he say that? Well, think about this. Look, life has its ups and downs. You all know this. And I, I've seen this in my own life, in my life of people in my family, and I've seen this in the life of the church. So it, this is just how life is. You are cruising along on cruise control, let's say. Things are just going on normally, 
no real problems in life, work seems good, family seems good, everything seems stable, and then all of a sudden, bam, see, I've seen people whose lives have been cooking along just fine, and then bam, they're hit by death. You know that story, I'm sure. I've seen people whose lives are just cooking along fine, and then all of a sudden they get called into the office, and their employer says, we're downsizing, we got to let you go. And they go, what the? I've talked to people who are going along, and everything seems fine, and life is normal, and then all of a sudden them, or someone they love close to them, has some sort of mental health crisis, and they are literally changed almost overnight to a completely different person, and they do not know how on earth how to relate to this person that they just 24 or 40, 48 hours completely thought they completely understood. I've known people who are walking along with life and things, things are normal and things are fine, and they go for just a routine checkup. A routine checkup because they got a sore neck, and the doctor says, please come in, we've got to talk, you have stage four whatever. That's how it goes. Now, when that happens to you, when you are not a substantive person, when you are a chaff-like person, when you are a hollow person, when these things happen to you, you become everybody on, to some level, I understand, everybody to some level, we become fearful, we become angry, we become anxious, our confidence is gone. But when you are chaff-like, you are utterly blown away by your circumstances. Your life rises and falls, your contentment rises and falls, your peace rises and falls with the state of your circumstances. You are up and down just like the market. But when you are a substantive person, when you are like a tree, you're rooted, you see. You're rooted in something that goes deeper than your circumstances, that goes deeper than your experiences. You're not, the tree, you see, does not depend on weather patterns for its nourishment. Rain, drought, makes no difference to a tree that is planted by streams of water where it can constantly be drawing strength from the water right beside it. And notice it says, his leaf does not wither. What is a withering leaf? A sign of a dying tree. See, the purpose of meditation, at least as it's described in Psalm 1, is that you and I would be able to flourish in all times, not just in the good times, not just in the days of sunny ways, but in the times of hardship, in the times of struggle, in the times where you feel like life is completely weighing you down and everything has gone sideways and you're not under sure, sure why, you're not understanding why, you still are able to sleep at night and you're still able to wake up with a sense of hope and joy because... You're planted by the stream of water. And you bear fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, you're not bearing fruit all the time. Do you notice that it says you bear fruit in season? Not every season is a fruit-bearing season. 
Not every time you meditate on scripture will you start bearing fruit. Frankly, there may be times and seasons, periods of your life, just like a tree when it's going through winter and it looks like nothing's happening. There's times in your life where you're reading the Bible and you're interacting with God and you're praying and you think, I am talking to the ceiling here or I am talking to the walls. I shared with you just a little while ago how I went through a really long season of that myself. But I will remind you once again of what happened to John Newton. He got a letter from a a parishioner who said, Reverend Newton, my problem is is that when I I get nothing out of prayer, so keep praying. See, a tree in wintertime, it looks like it's dead. But its roots are going deeper, its its bark is getting deeper than it did previously. So don't give up. Don't give up. And don't beat yourself up in those seasons where it feels like there's not a lot going on. Sure, test your heart. Maybe there are things in your life that need to be addressed. Maybe there's unconfessed sin. Maybe there's rebellion, whatever. But don't, in the end of the day, don't beat yourself up. Cry out to God. Trust the promise. What's the promise? Oh, that's point three. Verses five and six. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, but sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now it says, interesting how it says that, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. They will not... They will not be able to withstand the scrutiny that comes at the last day. That's what David is saying here. The rootless, fruitless, insubstantial way of living that prefers its own glory over the glory of God, he's saying it will not stand, it will not last, it will be lost. Yet, the way of the righteous, it says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Other translations put it that the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. So those who delight in his word, those who drink from the water of his word and bear fruit, he says, they will endure. Do you realize this, friends? You are very, well, maybe some of you aren't, because I don't know all of you, but most of you are very uh, inconsequential people at least in the world's eyes. Like, honestly, who has, anybody here? No, you don't have to put your hands up. But if you, my brother-in-law and my nephew, we're pretty inconsequential people. There are people who have done big things in this world, big things, and they continue to do big things. Think of Plato. People remember Plato. Someone once said the philosophy is basically Plato and the rest is a footnote. That's pretty influential. Think of the guys who invented Google. That's pretty influential. Stephen Jobs, pretty influential. These are people who have made big impacts on the world. You could say Muhammad and Buddha have been pretty influential. You could say Newton has been pretty influential. These are people who have done big things. What have you done lately? Made your bed this morning. Here's the thing. There is only one life to live. It will soon be passed. But all that is done for Christ will last. 
Plato, Steve Jobs, Nietzsche, who else do I have here? Immanuel Kant, Richard Dawkins, these are famous names of famous people. Nobody will remember them 50 billion years from now. But every nice, kind thing you did in the name of Jesus Christ for another person, you just gave him a drink of water. It's going to be celebrated into eternity. Very quickly. Do you notice in verse 3 it says that the tree is planted by a stream of water? Tree didn't put itself there, the tree was planted there. Any person who loves God at all, to any degree, is a tree planted by God Himself. He puts you where you are to bear fruit. He gave you the faith to trust yourself to Him. He started it. In other words, the will of the supreme, almighty creator of the universe was that you would know Him, would love Him, and that you would bear fruit for Him. It is guaranteed because it is not ultimately up to you. He is making sure it happens. Listen. Philippians 1 verse 6, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Who's the he? It ain't ye. It's God, right? Ephesians 2 verse 10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And Jesus himself, our Savior himself, in John 15, verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, this doesn't mean it's, it's simply automatic. The tree has to put its roots down in the water and drink. And you do too. But he will make you bear fruit. He will make it endure. That's the first thing. And the second thing, it's the life of Jesus Christ. You know, when you read Psalm 1, you cannot help, if you're a Christian, you, you have to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, okay? Very basic hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics, just a fancy word meaning just interpreting the Bible. If you are a Christian, you have to read the Old Testament from this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. So it takes on a new hue for you. And so you cannot help but read Psalm 1 because you live in the era of knowing Jesus who died, lived, died, rose again. I think I know. Who was it who delighted in God's law perfectly? Who was it who said, I love it when God tells me what to do? Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 4, he said, my food, my food, the thing that gives me energy, gives me strength, gives me joy, gives me everything, food, without it I die. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And Hebrews chapter 10, the author to the Hebrews says that when Jesus came into the world, he said, I have come to do your will, my God. 
And you read through the New Testament and you read that he meditated on God's word day and night. He withdrew to pray. How often did he withdraw to pray? Over and over and over again. And even when he was dying on the cross, he had God's word on his mind and in his heart because what did he do? He cried out. Psalm 22. Exactly. And when he was on that cross, he said, I thirst. Because while he was dying, he was being uprooted for you and for me. Psalm 22 says, I am poured out like water. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus became chaff. He was blown away. Became nothing but dust for you and for me. So that when God attempts at devotions or your weak, temptation-riddled attempts at obedience, he sees a son a daughter who delight in him in the way that he delights in them. You know, we sang that song, uh, I can't remember the name, As a Deer, I think, and at the point it says, you are the apple of my eye. Actually, in the Bible, it's the other way around. Did you know that? We are the apple of God's eye. I forget the psalm, but it says that in the psalms. We are the apple of his eye. Through Jesus Christ, he doesn't look at your weakness and your failures. He looks at you as perfectly obedient to him and perfectly devoted to him. And when you meditate on that, the more you'll delight in his law. The practice of meditation, the purpose of meditation, the promise of meditation. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. We, we confess that we are not the kind of believers that we ought to be. We are weak and fickle and short-sighted. Forgive us for that, Father. Give us a delight for your word. May we cherish it. May we love it when you tell us how to live and what to do because in it we find, we find strength. We find water that quenches our thirst and and food that energizes and strengthens us so that we can bear that fruit that you so long to see in us. Do this, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.